We're going to be uh, reading and studying from Romans 8 this morning. So if you want to turn there, and while y'all are turning there, I have a couple announcements. Uh, first, a little bit of scheduling. Uh, next Sunday, we will not have a college service. So uh, no college service. If you're here the weekend after Thanksgiving, you can go to the main service, but there will be no service here on Sunday morning. Then... The week after that, December 6th, will be our last college service. Uh, So we will have a regular college service on the 6th. And then December 13th, we will be celebrating Grace Bible Church's 50th anniversary. Yeah, so there will be no Sunday morning services on December 13th. Instead, the evening of December 13th, we're all going to be going to Reed Arena. And we're going to be having this really huge worship service Um, praising God for what he's been doing at Grace Bible Church for the last 50 years. So that'll be at Reed Arena on December 13th, that evening. So there will be nothing. The parking lot will be completely empty. If you want to just enjoy that, you can come that Sunday morning. But that's the only thing that you'll get around here Sunday morning, because Sunday night on the 13th will be at Reed Arena. And then we also have a Christmas party coming up, a college ministry Christmas party. Uh, The details, I don't really have them. So where you can get that is the Grace College Live Facebook page. So if you want to go to the Facebook page, uh, at some point we'll start posting information on the Christmas party there. So uh, before I begin, I will pray and we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you that, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can uh, take us from your hand. That you have saved us and we are firmly in your grip. Father, we pray that we would worship you because of that truth. Um, that we are uh, secure with you. We pray that that truth would sink down deep into our hearts and souls this morning. We love you. We thank you for allowing us to worship you in the body of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. My name is Marty Scott. I am a college pastor here, uh, overseeing missions and small groups. But typically on Sunday morning, I'm over at Anderson. Oh, I thought somebody was hissing. I was like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> I'm usually over at Anderson on Sunday morning, but uh, this Sunday, uh, I'm here because Trey's preaching over there. Uh, I have a family right here. Um, So that's my wife, Andrea. She's sitting over here. And then we have two little boys. Andrew is the excited one. He's three and a half, and Jonah's the confused one. He's one and a half. And they are uh, a ton of fun. We we really enjoy them. Uh, Andrea and I have been married for seven and a half years. Uh, But really, our story goes back uh, to nine years ago. Uh, Nine years ago was when I was preparing to graduate. And as most of you know, right before graduation, we all go to ring dance. And so the year year of ring dance, uh, my buddies, we were kind of like, "Eh, I don't know if we really want to go to that. It's kind of like college prom. But the girls in our group were like, no, y'all are going. Uh, You're taking us. And we're like, cool, that sounds great. Good deal. And so I... uh, was great friends with Andrea, and so I asked Andrea to ring dance with me. And uh, we went as friends, but we really had a great time at ring dance. And uh, coming out the other side, I was like, kind of want to be more than friends with Andrea. I'd like to date her. Uh, Except that uh, a crazy sequence of events that I'm not going to get into uh, occurred, and I wasn't able to ask her out again for an entire year. 
So I spend an entire year with all these different things happening, liking Andrea, but not uh, asking her out. And a year later, I finally, I was like, you know, enough is enough. Uh, I'm asking this girl out. I've liked her long enough. And so I asked her out uh, and she said yes. And I was super pumped. And then one of my good friends called her up to uh, find out. Um, he actually had a question about, he liked a girl and he wanted some dating advice from her. And uh, so he called her up and as they were talking, he let slip that I had liked her for the last year. And she was like, actually, I've liked Marty for the last year since Ring Dance too. Um, and so she found out that the two of us had liked each other for an entire year um, leading up to that point. And so he immediately got off the phone with her and called me and was like, you wouldn't believe this. Andrea's liked you for the last year. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And we both thought it was crazy. And he was like, man, y'all are getting married. And I was like, sounds good. <laughs> that made it easy, you know? Um, so I don't, most of us have probably been on first dates. Usually they are awkward. Um, there's, there's so much just tension. There's, there's this fear for a guy because I asked this girl out, but I don't know if she said yes because she wants a free meal. I don't know if she said yes because, you know, like, she just feels obligated because we're friends, you know, or maybe she really likes me. There's this fear of like, if I mess up, she's, she's out of here. She's not going to say yes to another date. For the girl, there's probably this fear of like, uh, if I get food stuck in my teeth, she's, he's going to think I'm weird and he's not going to ask me out again. So there's all this fear. You're kind of like, you're not acting yourself. You're like, man, I got to put on good Marty. Um, you know, like I got to, I got to really be awesome today instead of being myself. But for Andrea and I going into that first date, there was none of that. We had this, this security going into the first date knowing that we liked each other and that we had liked each other for a year. I could blow it. I could say something stupid on that first date. And it would have been all right because there was a year of her liking her. She wouldn't have just been like, peace, after, after you know, one stupid comment by me. And there was a le- we were able to be ourselves. Um, she had liked me for who I was over the last year, um, the goofy me, so I didn't have to be like awesome Marty this one night to really impress her. The security of knowing that we liked each other allowed me, freed me to not walk in fear during that date, but to walk just in joy, to, to enjoy the time and not have that awkward anxiety, um, that anxious fear of a first date. As important as it was for a first date, friendships, security is equally important. Unconditional love is equally important in a friendship. If, if a friendship doesn't have security, then, then you don't have the freedom to open up about what you're struggling about. You don't have the, the opportunity to talk to a friend and say, man, I'm really blowing it here. Can you help me? You can't bear each other's burdens because you're trying to impress one another. If there's not security in a friendship, you're constantly trying to impress one another. You're constantly trying to, to look really cool so that they won't just like push you out of the group. It's vital for authenticity, for vulnerability in a friendship, for there to be security. In marriage, it's equally important. In a marriage, how crazy would it be if every night as Andrea was preparing dinner, she was scared that if she burnt it or if it didn't taste good, I was gone. That would be a horrible way to live. Or if, if every night I was like, man, if I say something stupid, I say a lot of stupid things. So if I were like, man, if I say something stupid, Andrea's just like going to lose it on me and she's, she's leaving. Like that's a, that's a relationship that's based on conditional love and not unconditional love. But with unconditional love, there's security in the marriage and it's vital for a marriage to thrive, um, for there to be that security. And it's, it's easy once you start talking about to see in our, our relationships how valuable security is. But even more so with our relationship with God, it's incredibly important. 
Eternal security is one of those things. A lot of times we look at it as like this cherry on top of salvation. But really, eternal security is a doctrine that's vital to our relationship with God. Eternal security is the idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, you can never lose that. No amount of sin or disobedience can take that away. That's what eternal security is. And what it allows us to have, just like in marriage and in friendship, is to approach God with freedom to mess up, to approach God out of joy, out of appreciation for what he's done for us, rather than out of fear, out of a need to impress him, out of a need to earn merits to, uh, to get salvation. Eternal security is vital for us to approach God with an attitude of love as opposed to fear. Paul, uh, Paul addresses, well, eternal security is addressed throughout scripture in a number of ways, in a number of places, but Paul addresses it beautifully in Romans 8, 31 through 39, which is where we'll be this morning. Uh, some context leading up to that. Uh, Paul throughout Romans, uh, and you've probably spent a lot of time in Romans this semester, uh, throughout Romans, he's, he's spelled out salvation for us. So he begins talking about our sin and our depravity. Then he goes into justification by faith in chapter 3. And then as he moves through, he gets into sanctification some. And now at the end of chapter 8, uh, he takes two verses, verses 29 and 30, to just kind of give... Uh, a quick path of what salvation looks like. 29 through 30 say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, be, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In these whom he predestined, he also called. In these whom he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, this path of salvation that Paul spells out, uh, capping off his entire discussion of what it looks like to be saved. And now he answers this, this one last question that he assumes his, his readers are going to be asking about this is, how do I know that I'm on this path? And can I get off of it? And so that's the question that Paul is essentially addressing here as he moves into verse 31 through 39. He's going to address it with three primary arguments. The first argument is this. God is for us. 8.31-32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, God is for us is one of those arguments. It's like, how can I argue against that? You know, like, I assume all of you, if you believe in God, you also believe that he is all-powerful, that he's sovereign, that he controls the world. And so if that's the case, who can go against God? There's, there's really nothing. It's kind of a, a case-closed argument for Paul um, where he's saying, look, God is for you. No one else is going to level a charge against you because the Almighty is on your side. Similarly, John addresses this in John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. God being all powerful, God being greater than all, 
uh, holds us in his hand, and there is absolutely no one or no thing that can snatch us out of his hand. Therefore, Paul's able to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He doesn't have to prove that God is all-powerful. He doesn't have to prove that God can hold us. The question that he addresses from this is, how do I know that God is for me? How do I know that this all-powerful God is actually for us? And his answer is simple. He gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. There is no greater proof of his commitment and love to us than Jesus Christ. Going back to to my story with Andrea, uh, we dated for 11 months, and then uh, I decided I want to marry her, um, as foreseen by my friend. And so I took her to Bryson Park, and we went on a walk. And at the end of our walk, I got down on one knee, and I pulled out my ring, and I asked her if she would marry me. And uh, I handed her this engagement ring, and, and she took it, and she said, is this it? No, she didn't, she didn't actually say that. Um, she would never have said that. She loved the ring. She thought it was beautiful. And this ring was this beautiful symbol of my commitment and my love for her. And really, it was the most valuable possession I owned. There was, it was, I guarantee it was worth more than my truck. Um, there's nothing else that I could have given Andrea in that moment to show and to prove my love and my commitment to her. And that's what Paul is saying here. God has already given everything we need, the greatest thing he could possibly give to prove that he is on our side, that he is for us, that he loves us, and that he's committed to us. That's Paul's first proof of eternal security, that if God is for us, then nothing can remove us from his hand. Nothing can take our salvation away. And that's why we're eternally secure. His second argument is this, that God is the one who justifies and Christ is the one who intercedes. Verses 33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is this uh, kind of... Uh, cosmic court case, if you will. He's, Paul switches into legal language at this point. I'm talking about justification and interceding. And the idea is that you have God, the judge, standing, um, standing over us in this court, and we are the guilty party. And we've come before him uh, sinners. And for God, uh, he can either, he's both just. We saw in Romans 3 that God is both the just and justifier of those who are in Christ. Um, so God is standing before us, and he has a choice to either be just, justifier, or both. If he's just, uh, he has to lay down the penalty. The, the penalty has to be paid. And so if we were to pay that penalty through death, God would be just, but not the justifier. If he decides to save us without paying a penalty, then God is the justifier without being just. But in this case, we see he's both. And so God stands before us and he, he delivers the penalty for our sin, which is death. Um, and in his justice, he gives that penalty over to his son so that he's allowed to be just and the justifier. And in that moment when he's saying, you deserve death, Jesus Christ steps in and he intercedes on our behalf. He stands in our place and takes our penalty for sin. 
And, and this shows eternal security in two ways. First, as we see at the very beginning of the verse, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He is the one who justifies. There's no one to condemn. If we're guilty before God and our sin is before God and he declares us just, at that point, there's no one else who can come along and make a charge against us. Our sin is before God and him alone. Therefore, once he says you're just, that's the law. The case is closed. There's no one else who can come and condemn us for any of our sin. So we're eternally secure in that once we've been declared just, there's no one else who can come along and condemn us, can, can raise a charge against us. But I think more than that, Jesus Christ is the one who is interceding for us. Jesus Christ is the one who said, I will take his penalty. And in the case of eternal security, the question you have to ask is, at what point will he cease taking on that penalty? If he's standing in that courtroom and he's saying, for that sin, I'll take it. And for that sin, I'll take it. And for that sin, I'll take it. But for that sin, I'm done. Like, that's too much. There's never going to be a point where Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, is standing in that courtroom and says, I'm done taking the penalty for Marty's sin. He foresaw my sin from the beginning of time. He knew when he saved me what I would do in the past and what I would do in the future. And Jesus Christ will never at any moment say, that was too big of a sin. He'll never at any moment say, that was too much sin. I'm done interceding on his behalf. He is the perfect sacrifice. In Romans 5, it says, where sin increases, grace abounds. His grace uh, abounds so much that it will cover any and every sin that you could possibly perform, any disobedience that you could possibly do. We're eternally secure because Jesus Christ, the perfect Sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice, is the one interceding on our behalf. God is the one who justifies, and Jesus Christ is the one who intercedes for us. His third point is that nothing can separate us. And he goes into this with, uh, with two separate, coming from two separate directions. The first is 35 through 37. In 35, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in this things, these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This was a very real situation for the Romans. They were in the middle of being persecuted. They were in the middle of suffering. They were in the middle of facing peril in the sword and famine because they were Christians. And it's, it's a very uh, easy thing to move in that, in that moment, in that circumstance of suffering, to think, God, are you really here? Does God really love me if he's allowing me to suffer like this? Does he really love me if he allows me to be persecuted? If he allows me or my loved ones to be hurt? And what Paul's saying is that suffering isn't, uh, doesn't show that God has removed his love from us, but suffering shows that we are in the midst of God's love. Suffering and persecution have always been a part of the lives of those who are in Christ. 
And what Paul says is in that moment, instead of seeing ourselves as separated from God, we're to remember that we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Then in the midst of suffering and persecution, we have hope beyond hope, more hope than anybody could ever have because Jesus Christ conquered death. So no matter what the outcome of our persecution, what the outcome of our suffering is, we know that we're in God's love because he's given us victory already. And we can rest in that in the midst of suffering. Some of us, uh, some of us are struggling with that. Some of us are going through suffering. We're just the crazy of life. Um, and it can feel like, God, where are you in this moment? God, what are you doing Where are you? Do you really love me? Do you really care about me in this moment? And the idea here is that we are in Christ even in these moments. And because of that, whatever outcome could happen, you're a conqueror in him. You share in Christ's victory. And Paul says that should bring you comfort, not fear, not confusion in that circumstance. Then he moves on to the last few verses. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think these are two of the greatest verses um, to ever be penned really. Uh, If you can't find comfort in these, um, I don't know where comfort is. Uh, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, uh, at one time death signaled separation from God. But because of what Christ did, because of his victory that he won, death no longer signals separation from God, but death is moving towards God. It's moving closer so that death no longer um, should cause us to fear, but we can approach death um, knowing that, as Christ, or as Paul put it, to live as to live as Christ and to die is gain. I mean, he can look forward to this moment where he's closer to God. Death does not separate us from God. Angels, principalities, things present—none of those can separate us from God. No things to come. A lot of times we think that when Jesus saved me, uh, he forgave the sins from my past. Um, at that moment, but did he know that I would mess up so many times in the future? This is saying is there's no thing to come. Nothing in the future could possibly separate us from the love of God. He foresaw it when he saved you. There is nothing past, present, or future that could separate you from the love of God. No level, no type of disobedience or sin. No powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. He really could have just started with that, couldn't he? Um, Nor any other created thing. That's everything else that you could possibly think of in this category, including you and me. Um, We are created things that fall directly in that last little clause. Nothing that you do or I do could possibly separate me from the love of God. No amount of sin or disobedience. I could step off this stage and walk away from the church and from Christ right now. But 
being a created thing, even doing that, could not separate me from the love of Christ. I could declare that I no longer believe, and even that would not separate me from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ. Uh, Most of us have been teenagers, I assume. Some of you still are there. And uh, as typical with teenagers, uh, you get to a point where you decide, I need to spread my wings. I need to test some of these boundaries. And we begin to, we begin to push on our parents a little, right? Um, we begin to rebel. Um, sometimes it's small, small rebellions like refusing to clean our room or, um, you know, like even my, my three-year-old, he, he has little rebellions like we lay him down in bed and then eventually he like sneaks out and just like goes and grabs a toy and sticks it under his pillow. And it's like, why are you doing that? But it's just to test, just to see if we can get him. Uh, but we, we all begin to rebel and we all begin to test those boundaries and begin to disobey our parents. And some of us, it, again, it's just, I'm not going to clean my room today. But for others, it gets worse and worse. It's, it's drinking and drugs and partying. Um, a few people in here have probably run away at some point or another, just like the prodigal son. And when you do that, no matter how far your rebellion goes, at no point are you no longer your parents' kid? In, in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of my disobedience, at no point did I ever uh, undo the fact that I'm a Scot. I've always been a Scot. I always will be a Scot. Um, no amount of rebellion, disobedience, sin towards my parents could ever change that fact. My disobedience and my sin affect the relationship with my parents insofar as when I'm disobeying, they no longer trust me. They take away responsibilities I have. We lack closeness. We lack intimacy. We lack vulnerability. My sin towards my parents, my disobedience towards my parents, it affects our fellowship with one another. But at no point does it affect my status as their son. And that's that's ultimately what Paul is saying here. At no point will your status as an adopted son or daughter of God ever be affected by any level of sin, disobedience, or unfaithfulness. Your intimacy with him will, your communion with him will, your closeness, your vulnerability, the responsibilities that he's willing you to, get, to give to you. Your job as his ambassador and his representative are affected by this. But at no point... Ever for anything that you do, could you possibly affect your status as his son or daughter? Because you are a created thing, and there is no created thing that could separate you from the love of God. To saw God is for us, and because of that, nothing can stand against us. God is the one who justifies, and Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice is the one who intercedes for us. And then nothing, no situation, no circumstance, and no thing, including you, can separate us from the love of God. Paul, Paul takes this entire section, and this is the capstone of his entire discussion of salvation. So he spent chapters upon chapters explaining what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be saved, what it means to be justified. And now he ends it with this. And what he's going to move into is what it looks like to walk the Christian life. And this is this this beautiful transition from salvation into the Christian life. Because 
the Christian life has always been meant to be done within eternal security. For Christians, there is no room to question whether or not you are saved. Once you have placed your faith in Christ, you can be certain of that fact, that you are in God's hand, that you are saved and nothing can separate you from him. What this does is, is as you serve, as you have quiet times, as you love and share your faith with other people, all of this can be done not out of fear, but out of joy. It can be done not out of a desire to earn salvation, to, to merit anything, um, but it can be done out of appreciation for what God has already done for you. Our Christian walk should be a response to God, not an attempt to earn something, not, not an attempt to leverage, leverage something. And so in application for this passage, um, I simply want to ask you to do this. Over the next week, you're going to have some time off. And I want you to spend that time praising God that he doesn't want you to work to earn anything. Praising God that he has already done everything in Christ for you. Have this passage bookmarked over the next week. And as you read, come back to it over and over again and worship him because he has already done everything that needs to be done for you to have a relationship with him, for you to go to heaven. Spend time worshiping him, but then also spend time meditating on your own Christian life, on your own walk. Spend time asking him, God, why do I do what I do? Why do I have quiet times? Is it to earn your favor? Is it because I think that if I don't, that you're going to be angry at me? That I might fall out of your grace? Is that why you have quiet time? Or is it because I want to know you more? I want to, to grow in my intimacy from my, with my father. Why do you serve at the church? Do you serve at the church? <laughs> as a response to his grace to you, as a response to his relationship with you, we should be serving his body. So why do you serve? Is it, is it to impress others? Is it to impress God with all the different groups and organizations you're in? Or is it because you love him, because you want him to be made known? So two things this week. Worship him because of what he's done. And then meditate on your own Christian walk and what your motives for doing what you do are. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. We thank you that you have called us, that you have predestined us, you have justified us, and that we have hope as conquerors that one day you will glorify us. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into our own walks, uh, into our own lives, um, that you would reveal our hearts and our motives to us, um, to show us why we serve. Help us understand why and what our motives are for doing what we do. And Father, I pray that as we worship you uh, for what you've done, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would um, draw us closer to you in intimacy and love, that we would be able to respond to your grace the way we were meant to. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The rest of the time you have at your tables to go through discussion questions.